One of the most, I think, sorrowful and agonizing experiences that someone can have in their life is to lose a child. I've been fortunate enough to never have to go through that myself, but even, even the thought of, of losing one of my dear children brings, brings a deep sadness to my heart. There was an American writer and theologian who was named Joseph Bailey, and, and he knew what it meant to, to lose a child. At the age of 18 days, he lost his first child during surgery. At five years old, he lost his second child to leukemia, and then he lost another son at 18 years old from a sledding accident. And he wrote these words, he was a writer for a newspaper, and he wrote these words that I think we can all relate to, this feeling that we have when we hear about the death of a child. And this is what he says. He says, of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it's a period placed before the end of a sentence. Sometimes when the sentence has hardly even begun. We expect the old to die. Separation is still difficult, but it comes to us as no surprise. But the child, the youth, death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. No parent should have to bury their child. And the suffering that precedes death is equally cruel upon us. Children were made for fun and for laughter and for sunshine, not for pain, suffering, and death. The death of a child causes us to wonder why or how long. How long will this world be enslaved to sin and death? How long will the suffering that we see day in and day out continue on? What is what is to be done about this, this enemy of death that, that Joseph says here comes like a cruel thief and steals away and devours and destroys and reigns terror all across this earth? Are we without hope? Are we alone? Are we simply to accept death as a reality and as a force that cannot be reckoned with? Well, this morning our passage seeks to answer those questions for us. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, and I'll read why it is we are not without hope this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 to 17. Soon afterward, he that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier 
And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. And they glorified glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. In this passage, we see two key truths that we as Christians can grab hold of when we face suffering and hardship and death in our lives. See, all of us here live in a world where suffering and pain and death is inevitable. You can travel to any place on this world, every corner of the earth, and you will find suffering and death. And we recognize, as, as people created in the image of God, that this is wrong. That, th- that there is something wrong with this suffering and death that exists in this world. And so we try to limit the suffering, or we try to prolong or conquer death in one way or another. Millions of dollars every year is funneled into life extension research and this desire to to conquer this enemy of death. I read there's a a list of about 100 millionaires and billionaires who have already signed up to, when they die, remove their brain and have it frozen in ice so that in 100 years, 200 years, when the technology advances to a certain point, they can be revived back to life and, and overcome this death that takes all of us. But in reality, you know, every attempt that has ever existed to thwart the enemy of death has come up empty, just as that, that will come up empty as well. You know, every attempt to permanently remove suffering from this earth has come up empty. And always will, as long as sin is still here on this earth. And so it appears then, if we look at that, that we are a people without any hope. That there are enemies and forces that will never be conquered. That suffering is going to continue to grow. That evil has won and that sin and death reign supreme. And if there is a God, it seems like he doesn't care too much about all of the suffering that's going on. It seems like he doesn't care too much about defeating this enemy of death. He seems to be fine with letting children die, with letting sin and suffering reign. But in our passage this morning, we're going to look at two truths that show us that, that both of those statements is absolutely false. That the, the, that that Jesus does, in fact, care about your suffering. And that Jesus does, in fact, hold the power over death. And both of these truths should inspire a hope and a joy in you that even in the midst of all of your sufferings and hardship and, and the death that you see around you, you can still have hope. You can still have hope. And so those are the two points that we're going to be looking at this morning. First, Jesus cares about your suffering. And second, Jesus holds the power over death. But before we get to that, let's quickly look at this scene here 
that Luke has introduced us to. Verse 11 and 12 tell us this. Soon afterward, so if you remember last passage, Jesus had just gone and healed a man in Capernaum. And it says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so Jesus leaves Capernaum, and he has his disciples and this large crowd that are following him, and he approaches this small town called Nain. It was just a little town outside of Nazareth, not really significant at all. This is the only time it's mentioned in the Bible and in any literature that we have. And so Jesus is making his way to this town, and as he is, he sees that there is another large crowd that is forming within the town itself. And the reason that this crowd is formed is because what you have now is a funeral procession taking place. Unfortunately, Jesus says here that a young man has recently died. And because he no longer belongs among the living within the town, they're taking him out of the town to dwell amongst the dead. And we're told that this, that this is a young man. The, the Greek word used here means a boy or a young man who is past the age of puberty but still not a full adult who is cleaved from his, his family and married a woman. So he's probably around 15, 16, 17 years old. And we're told that, that he is the only son of a widow. And now what that means is that this mother here that Jesus is encountering has really been through the ringer. She has lost all that she has. She has no sons. She has no husband, which means in Jewish culture, she really has no social protection at all. She has no one to care for her or look for her. And, and you can imagine, imagine the pain that she's feeling as she's standing there seeing her son being carried out. You know, first, she's, she's lost her husband, the one that she was united to in marriage, the one that she's become one flesh with through her covenant of marriage, the one that she planned to live the rest of her life loving, serving, and caring for. And yet, he was taken away from her through the enemy of death. But she might have thought for a little while, you know, at least I still have my son. You know, I, there's no cameras back then. There's no pictures that she would have had of her husband. And the memories would have started to fade. But at least she had a son that she could look at and she could see and be reminded of, of her husband every time she looked at her son. But then we see again that death has come knocking and has now taken her one and only son away from her. You know, I think of Jeremiah 9 verse 21. It describes this situation bang on. It says, death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has removed the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. This, this widow has lost everything that is dearest to her in this life. And so you can picture this scene before us. She is standing there and she is wailing. And there's no immediate family beside her because they've all been taken by death. She is crying as she 
weeps for her dead child. And this is the scene that Jesus, with this large crowd behind him, enters into as he approaches this little town of Nain. And this leads to the first point of our sermon. What, is, what does Jesus do when he encounters this type of, of suffering? What is, he, what is he going to do when he comes across this in someone's life? And we see that in point one, Jesus cares. Jesus cares about your suffering. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Now there are a few things that just that one little verse shows us and that it displays to us about how Jesus cares for us in our suffering. And the first one is this. Notice that Jesus goes to the widow. Out of his own initiative, he is the one who goes and approaches her. So there's times when Jesus heals and others come up and they approach Jesus or they see him in the town and they say, hey, we know someone that's sick, come and and we'll bring you to them. But notice here, Jesus doesn't wait for that. Jesus sees this woman in her suffering and he goes and he approaches her. And this tells us something. It tells us that Jesus desires to help. You know, it's not, it's not an inconvenience for him. He's, he's not like one of those friends where you know, you know they're, they're helping you, but they, they're only really doing it out of duty. They don't actually have a desire to do it. They don't actually want to be there. And I'll admit that I've been that, that person at times, but Jesus is not like that. You know, Jesus is, is like one of those friends who, who just knows what you need, and comes and helps you with it. Who, who doesn't wait for you to ask, but seeks out ways when he, sees, when he sees some sort of need or sees some sort of suffering, who comes and to helps. And that's what Jesus is like. He's going out of his way, and he approaches her to come and help. So that's the first thing we see. Second, we see that Jesus has true compassion for her. Now, Jesus doesn't just... You know, see this situation from afar, see the, the body being carried and say, oh man, that, that's terrible that that happened. That, that really sucks. But then just move on with his day. You know, there's not simply a, a mere intellectual acknowledgement of the suffering, but there's an empathy that Jesus has here. Now, that word translated that he has compassion literally means to be, to be moved in one's bowels. You know, your, your stomach... Was, was considered to be the, the seat of, of love and pity. You know, and, and we kind of recognize that today. You, know, you see a, a difficult situation, a sad situation, and your stomach sometimes starts hurting. You're, you're moved in your bowels with compassion and sympathy. And so what it's getting at here is that, that Jesus has this, this true and genuine uh, compassion and, and, and pity towards this widow. You know, he looks upon this state of suffering, this state of distress, and he feels for her. He literally feels for her. The last sermon I I talked about how none of us here deserve the love and the mercy and the grace of God. How we're all unworthy before him, how the only thing that we do deserve for our sin is the wrath of God. And you could 
leave from a sermon like that and think like that God is, is just this, this mean God. That he's just waiting to, to smite us. That he's just waiting to say, you know, you're just getting what you deserve, pal. But this passage shows us, and I think it comes right after this other one for a reason, that God is a God of, of immense compassion for us in our suffering. And that's because that's part of, of who he is. One of the most prominent descriptors of God in the Old Testament is this. The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you see, even though we don't deserve the love of God, God is not this mean God sitting there waiting to, to, to give us out what we deserve. He doesn't say you're just getting what's coming to you. He is merciful and he's compassionate. We see this from the very first pages of Scripture. I mean, think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are told that if they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they will surely die. And in their sick rebellion, they have everything that they could ever want from God. They have communion with God. And yet they think that they're going to come and steal some of the glory from God himself. And yet God, even though he has every right to smush to, to smash and crush them and bring all of creation down with them, what does he do? Instead, he shows them great compassion. He goes and he covers them in their filth, in their dirtiness, and in their shame. And it's the same thing that God does to us. God looks upon us with compassion. This is the God that we worship. And, he, and, and, and we see this compassion being played out now in the life of Jesus as he's standing there looking at that widow in the streets. And so that's the second thing we see. Jesus, Jesus has true and genuine compassion. He feels for you in your suffering. And then third, we see that Jesus' compassion leads him to action. You know, he, he sees the woman and he goes and he comforts her. True compassion is always going to lead to some sort of response. I mean, we all know John 3.16. I'm sure many of the children here know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he felt bad for them and then went on with his day. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, Jesus's compa- or God's compassion, God's love leads him to action. And now that action, it doesn't always mean that you know, we have to solve the problem for the person. There's some problems that we as humans are not going to be able to fix. You know, if we were walking into Nain, just as Jesus was walking into Nain, and we saw a, a dead man being carried out on a, on a stretcher, we wouldn't most likely, I mean there might be a tiniest little chance, but we probably would not go up and, and pray for this man and heal this man. There's things that we aren't able to do. We aren't always able to, to solve the problem. But what we can do you know, is other things. Our compassion can lead us to do other things. We can weep with the, the widow who is standing there. We can sit and we can listen to the widow or we can pray for the widow. You know, sometimes I, I, I think 
you know, men especially, because this is the way our, our minds are, are wired, that when we encounter someone in suffering, what do, we, what do we immediately think? We immediately think, how can I solve this? You know, this is a problem, and there is some solution here, and we just need to find the solution, and then everything is going to be great. And we make this, this beeline to solving and fixing the suffering. But sometimes, that's not the action that that God is calling us to, and that's not the action that people actually need. It's like Job's friends. Job's friends started off by being this great blessing to Job, by just coming there and sitting with him and listening to him and weeping with him for all, all the suffering that he was in. It was not until they started to open their mouths and try to figure out what the problem was that Job calls them what? Worthless counselors because of, of, of their attempt to solve this problem that, that didn't necessarily have a solution that we're able to solve. And so then all of that to say is that Jesus shows us here that compassion is going to lead to some sort of action on our part. It doesn't mean solving the problem, but it does mean some sort of action that's going to differ depending on the situation. And so now that we've, we've seen then that Jesus approaches the widow in her suffering. We've seen that Jesus feels for and has genuine compassion for the widow in her suffering and that his compassion leads to action. Those three things, what can we now conclude from this first point? Well, first and foremost, that Jesus cares about your suffering. Jesus cares more, and and not only that, Jesus cares about you in your suffering. He doesn't just care about the situation surrounding. He cares about you in your suffering. Jesus, as he has compassion on this widow, he has compassion and sympathy for you. You might not have lost a son, lost a husband like this widow here, but we all face suffering and trial and hardship and sorrow in other ways. I know some of you are going through that. Maybe it's a sickness that just seems to never go away. Maybe it's a, a, a marriage that is difficult, that should be a place of joy and security and love, and instead it's a place of sorrow and a place of hardship. Maybe it's challenges at work. Maybe financial difficulties. Maybe difficult children that you're laboring to, to teach and raise, and it just feels like you're getting nowhere with them. Maybe it's you know, just these little things day in and day out where you feel like you can't catch a single break. Every, everything goes wrong and it is wearing you down to the bone. Well, know this, that God sees you in your suffering and he deeply, deeply cares for you. And I think the story of Joseph, you know, sold by his brothers and then falsely accused and thrown into prison and then left in prison for dead. And yet the whole time, We are reminded through that story, we're tempted to say, God has left Joseph, because look at all the bad that's happening to him. But we are reminded in that story multiple times, God says, and the Lord was with Joseph. In all of the suffering that he faced, the Lord was with Joseph. In all of the suffering that you're facing, the Lord is with you. He is with you. In fact, he knows exactly what it is that you're going through. Jesus entered into this world and he was known as a man of sorrows. A man who suffered alongside his creation. 
He faced poverty. He faced rejection. He faced abandonment by those he loved the most. He faced betrayal. He faced loss, pain, suffering, and the death of loved ones. And so in our suffering, we can know and we can be sure that he comes alongside us and he grabs us and he holds us and he comforts us and he says, I have been there, my dear child. Hold on to me and I'm going to get you through. I'm going to get you through. I love the way the book of 1 Peter ends. If you remember, that book is about Christians who are suffering and, and their call to continue down the path of suffering even though it's going to be hard. And as Peter ends his letter, this is what he says to them after he's called them to this this difficult task of suffering. He says this in 1 Peter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God cares for whatever it is that you are going through. And he will strengthen you. He will strengthen you through it. And so that's the main point of this first section. That Jesus cares for you in your suffering. I know some of you need to hear that this morning. But there's also a second kind of minor point of of application for us here. And that is that we need to model this same compassion that Jesus has towards others in our lives. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 to 4 tells us the reason why God comforts us in our suffering. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And then it goes on to say this, So that we may be able to, To comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. You see, God comforts us in our suffering, not that we stay there, but that we go and we comfort others in their suffering. I think of the Apostle Paul, a man who who suffered a bunch, but think of the comforting words that he has given us in, in Scripture. God comforts us that we would go and extend that same compassion and comfort to others. We want to have the heart and mind of Christ for those who are suffering. We want to offer them this same comfort that we've received from the Lord Jesus. And so I think it's a good time to ask yourself, you know, how can you become a better comforter? Could you reach out more like Jesus reaches out to the widow? You know, does your heart need to be changed to be a type of person who when you see suffering, just like Jesus, you, you feel that in your, your stomach. You, you feel this empathy towards them. Or maybe does your compassion need to come with a little bit more action? You don't just need to feel for someone, but you actually need to go and love them and show them compassion. How can you look more like Jesus in your life in the area of compassion? And so now moving on to our Second point of the sermon. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Then he came up and touched the, the beer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. 
And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. The second point of the sermon is this, that Jesus holds the power over death. As I talked about in the introduction, death is something that everyone is familiar with. Everyone knows someone who has died. Everyone has heard about all the death you know, in the news lately and the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And everyone one day will succumb to death themselves. And now what exactly then is this, this death that we are all so familiar with? How does the Bible describe this enemy that we encounter so often? Well, the Bible describes death in six different ways. First, death is a curse. Death is a curse. Spiritual, physical, eternal death are the curse that come with our sin. You know, that was promised and warned to Adam and Eve before they sinned that they would be cursed with death if they continued on, if they, if they sinned against God and rebelled against him. So death is a curse. Second, death is a wage. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. In other words, death is, is the thing that is owed for sin. You know, the logical consequence that comes when we sin is that we die. You sin, you die. That's the wages of sin. Third, death is an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 talks about how death, just like sin, just like Satan, just like evil in this world, is an enemy of God. Death is opposed to the God of life and is opposed to life given to humanity. So death is a curse, death is a wage, death is an enemy. Fourth, death is an enslaver. Hebrews 2 verse 14 to 15 talks about how, how man is enslaved to the fear of death. And we all know this to be true. You know, the fear of death serves as a, as a master in, in many people's lives of the decisions that they make. You know, Satan lies a lot, but he was right when he said in, in the book of Job, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. And why is that? Because we are enslaved to the fear of death. That we will do what the master of death tells us. Fear, is lo- fear of losing life, fear of death enslaves us. That's the fourth thing. Fifth, death is an agony. Death is an agony. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 teaches us that. After physical death has consumed, the rich man consumed Lazarus, they're both taken to two different places. One is taken to eternal life, and the other is taken to eternal death. And we read that the man there is crying out in agony because death leads to pain. And death leads to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Death is an agony. And then fifth, sixth, death is eternal. Revelation 20 talks about this great white throne judgment that is going to occur. And you'll notice in that, that it says that Hades, the place of the dead, releases the dead from it. You see, when you die physically, that's not the last death. You know, you you come out and the dead are released from Hades and they are, if they're not in Christ, they are thrown into 
the lake of fire for an eternal death, an eternal suffering um, forever. And so we see here that death is a curse, death is a wage, death is an, an enemy, death is an enslaver, death is in agony, and death is eternal. And so it's no wonder then that we hate death. It's no wonder that we recognize death as wrong. It's no wonder that it is an enemy. This is the thing that is awaiting us. And human beings cannot do a single thing to stop it. I mean, we are the reason that exists in the first place. Death reigns in this world. Why? Because we are sinners. And with sin comes death. And so we are then all left with this looming fate of a future death that is, come, that, that is going to come to us. That is, apart from Jesus Christ. Because you see here, Jesus then enters into the scene and we see that not only does Jesus have a compassion for us in our suffering, but he actually has the power to overcome death. And in this passage, we get a foreshadow of the victory of death that is to come. You know, in, in our story, Jesus, he, he moves on. He's standing there with the woman. He's, he's telling her to weep no more. And then he moves on and he approaches the bier. And a bier is just like an open coffin. They wouldn't, they wouldn't bury people in closed coffins. It was an open coffin. And Jesus goes out and he, he reaches his hand and he touches the bier. And that's interesting because in Numbers 19... If you go and you touch a dead body or something a dead body is on, that would make you unclean. And so Jesus, we know he doesn't have to touch this thing uh, in order to heal the man. But he chooses to go and he chooses to put his hand upon that. And because he himself is the fully clean one, instead of him becoming defiled, dirty, he actually imparts now his cleanliness, and he imparts life to this dead body. He stands there in front of him and he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And it says that the dead man sat up and began to speak. Even that sentence itself doesn't make sense in any other worldview besides the Christian worldview. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And do you see the absolute power of Jesus here. Jesus speaks to a cold and dead corpse that is, is sitting before him that is beginning to rot away. All the vital organs have shut down. The brain cells and the synapses have all ended and starting to die. The, the flesh and the skin is starting to rot away. And yet, Jesus can stand there and restore this dead body to new life. And he tells him to stand up and he gives them back to his grieving mother. See, in a world where there is no God, in a world where there is no Savior, it is true that death and Satan have won. But that is not the world that we live in. We see in this beautiful scene before us, the mother's face lighting up, her sorrow being turned to joy, because we see that Jesus has the power to defeat death. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, destroyed death 
and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death and sin don't reign anymore. There is a Savior who reigns. And he says to us these beautiful words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. Jesus has come and he has defeated the reign of death over humanity. He's come as Hebrews 2 verse says, 2 verse 14 says, that by death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And now how did Jesus do that? How did he defeat this great enemy? Well, he underwent death itself. That's the beauty of God. God even takes the greatest enemy that is death and sin and he uses it for his own good, for his own will to accomplish the greatest act of redemption that has ever happened. He, he is so much, that's why I will never fall into despair in this world. Because Jesus takes the greatest enemy of death and he uses it for the greatest good that has ever happened. We can never lose hope in God. He he, uh, he destroys death through death. John Owen wrote a book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That's what happened. He destroyed death through his death. You see, there's only two options to remove death from this earth. The first option is everyone dies, and God destroys and consumes the earth, and there's going to be no more death and sin on this earth. Or there's the second option, which thankfully God took, and that is that Jesus himself dies, takes the penalty in our place, and then he goes and he rises from the grave, showing that he truly is the one who has power over death. 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Jesus has conquered death. Then, Pastor Lucas, why do we still die? Why do we still see death and and suffering all around us? I thought that Jesus has conquered sin and he has conquered death. You know, that's a good question. It's a question that I've I've wrestled with myself, that I've, I've asked that as I've stood beside the grave of someone who believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus. And yet they were going down into death. So how, why, why is there still death? Why do we still see this around us? Well first, I think it's important to note that the greatest forms of death have already been defeated. And so you have physical death, you have spiritual death, and you have eternal death. And we see that spiritual death has been defeated in that Jesus now offers salvation to sinners like us and gives us life. We see that eternal death is defeated. Jesus comes and he says, even though you die, yet shall you live. And whoever believes in me will never die. And so Jesus is saying there that eternal death has been defeated in the eternal life that he has given us. But that still makes us wonder, okay, the two biggest 
biggest enemies are, are gone, but why does physical death still remain? And I hope that, I, I, I wish I could give you a very simple answer to that, tell you exactly why, but the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, although it does give us a, a, a clue, a few clues as to why physical death is still around. And I think the biggest clue is that God allows us to physically die for our own benefit and edification. Now you might be thinking, that doesn't make sense at all. But let me explain. I'm not sure if any of you guys have ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress. But at the end of that book, uh, Christian and Hopeful have gone through this long journey which represents the Christian life. And they can see the, the, the celestial city in front of them. They've almost made it there. And as they get close to entering into the front gates, all of a sudden they see there is this river that is running right in front of them. And it's known as the river of death. And they stand there wondering how it is they're going to get to the the celestial city. How they're going to get to the kingdom of God. And there's some men that are standing by the river and say to them, you must go through or you will never get to the gate. And Christian and and hopeful stand there seeing the, the terror of this river before them. They ask the men, is there, is there any other way? And the men reply to them, yes, there, there is. But since the foundation of the world, there's only been two men, Enoch and Elijah, who have entered that way. And no one else will enter that way again until the Lord Jesus comes. And so Christian and hopeful recognize that in order to enter into the presence of God, they must enter through the river of death. And what this is picturing for us is the idea, I mean, that's not the Bible, but the themes come from the Bible. And what this is picturing for us is the idea that death remains as the way in which we enter into the presence of God. Death is the final act of of purification, where these sinful bodies that we, we, we inhabit are are laid in the grave, the last remnants of sin in us are destroyed and our spirit goes to immediately be with the Lord. And so physical death is this hastening us into the presence of the Lord if we are in Christ where we shall see him and there will be no more sin. All that, all that remained that was sinful is gone. And as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we shall see him face to face and we shall know him fully. And so then physical death, we can think of it now not as an enemy to be feared, but something that, that we don't have to be afraid of. This is the final step into entering into the presence of our Lord. But even then, we still do have hope that one day, even physical death will be no more. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is putting every enemy under his feet. And the last enemy that is going to be destroyed on that final day is the enemy of death. Revelation 20 talks about how death itself is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the first order of things has passed away. And so what are some applications for us? knowing that Jesus has power over death. Well, first, we do not have to fear death as an unconquerable enemy any longer. 
Now, death is still sad. Death is still a reminder of the cost of our sin. We still weep at the death of a loved one and the pain that comes to those that we love who are dying. But we are not overcome, for we know that death has been conquered and a greater hope of eternal life lies before us if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. And so you do not have to fear death this morning, Christian. The world could be getting a lot worse, but we don't have to fear. Death is not an enemy that is unconquered. Now, if you aren't a Christian here this morning, then I want to give you a warning. You should fear. You know, death is still an enemy that is going to consume you. There is still an eternal death that is waiting for you. And so if you don't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, if you don't repent of the way that you are walking in, then you will be consumed. And you should fear. Because death is coming for you. But the good news of the gospel is that there is eternal life that is offered to anyone who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now a second point of application quickly is this. Jesus is still conquering death to this day. All of us here sitting in this room who have trusted in Jesus, we are examples of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, Jesus has raised you from death to life. He's taken your, your lifeless, spiritually dead and cold corpse, and he said to you, as he said to this young man, young man, young lady, arise. And this should give us hope. This should give us hope for those in our life that we are praying for. We all have friends, family, children in our lives who are not saved, who have not been risen to life. But Jesus is still in the business of conquering death. Jesus is still in the business of giving life. Maybe it's a teenage child who's wandering away from the things that you've labored to teach them. Maybe it's a family member who's just closed completely to any sort of spiritual conversation. Maybe it's a coworker, you know, who you so desire to be, to be saved from their spiritual depravity. Well, have hope. Jesus is the Lord of life who gives life to the dead. And so labor on in your ministry, labor on in your prayers and petitions before the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain because you have the Lord of life on your side. And so in conclusion, suffering death and death are things that we all face as Christians in this world. You can't avoid them. You can't escape them. Eventually they will come and they will find you. But thanks be to God that we have hope in both our suffering and death. You have a God who is near to you in your suffering, a God who looks upon you with compassion and mercy, a God who has entered into suffering that he might redeem you from eternal suffering that comes as a result of your sin. And so, have hope in God this morning. He is going to wipe away every tear. He is going to wipe away all darkness. He is going to wipe away all pain. And when we finally face that last enemy of death, we know that on the other side is waiting for us no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, but only joy, peace, and glory in the presence of your Savior. And so take heart this morning. Jesus sees you, Jesus cares for you, and he has the power to save you. Let me pray. Dear God, 
We see here the compassionate hand that you have towards us. Lord, you know the trials that everyone here is going through. You know the suffering that we face day in and day out. And Lord, we thank you so much that you, you comfort us in that. That you love us so much. That you will never leave us or forsake us. That we are never alone. And that you showed us that love by sending your son to die. And so that we can proclaim as scripture proclaims. If he did not withhold his one and only son. Surely he will give us all things. May we hold on to that comfort and that promise this morning as we leave. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.